Welcome to Nutrition Assessment. In this episode, we have the audio-only part of the pre-recorded content for week six of the semester looking at diet analysis. So you'll hear me say this several times in this particular episode, but for me, for my part, assessing someone's diet means collecting information about their diet. Analyzing their diet means interpreting that, looking at that, getting the numbers, what do those numbers mean, and comparing it to a standard. So that's what we'll talk about in this particular episode. Um, And as I listened back, I realized about a dozen things I wish I'd said. So if you have questions as you're listening to this, that makes sense to me. So please do come to lab this week with questions about all of this, and I will be happy to answer them. Okay. So as we launch into getting started with looking at diet analysis, um, I'm going to stop for a minute and talk about the open study, um, because what this, what the open study does nicely for us is tie together several big concepts that we've covered so far in the class. So the open study that stands for the observing protein and energy nutrition study. And this was a study sponsored by the National National Cancer Institute um, designed to assess dietary measurement error, okay? So it is upfront acknowledging we have error in the way that we do diet assessment. How do we fix that? And so the open study was looking at results from self-reported dietary intake data and looking at um, dietary biomarkers. So we'll get at this idea as we go through the lecture of wouldn't it be nice if we could just draw your blood and know how many calories you ate that day or what your vitamin C status was for, you know, your, your intake over the last three months. Um, And that's just, that's not how diet works. It's far more complex than that. And so it's very difficult to measure exactly what someone ate. But if you think back to the different ways we can measure energy expenditure, one of those ways was doubly labeled water, and that is arguably would, uh, would be our gold standard, right? Because doubly labeled water, the person can drink the water and then leave the lab and go about their life and do whatever they like to do. Except that it's extremely expensive because it uses um, a stable isotope of water in order to work. And so the open study used about 484 people, so less than 500 people, um, to assess this, um, the exact level of energy output. So use doubly labeled water to measure exactly how much energy someone, assuming they were weight stable, right? How much energy they must have taken in to remain weight stable because energy in has to equal energy out if you are in fact weight stable. So, okay. So the open study, they actually used our gold standard. They used doubly labeled water And they compared it to food frequency questionnaires and 24-hour recalls. So what did they find? This study was was conducted in 1999 into 2000. And in 2003, one of the publications that came out wrote, in the Observing Protein and Energy Nutrition Study, the FFQ, the food frequency questionnaire, underreported median energy intake by 30 to 40% as compared to doubly labeled water. That's a lot. The 24-hour recall underreported median energy and median energy intake by 10 to 20%. That's not as much, but it's still not great. So 
The authors conclude, because of severe attenuation, the FFQ cannot be recommended as an instrument for evaluating relations between absolute intake of energy or protein and disease, meaning you can't use the FFQ to determine the exact number of calories an individual eats. Um, and so although it's not as bad in analyses, so they also looked at um, energy-adjusted protein. Protein was actually better reported in, by both methods, but there was still some substantial room for error in both the food frequency questionnaire and 24-hour recall. So here's a good time to point out that the food frequency questionnaire, while a wonderful tool, was really designed to be used in large epidemiological studies where you look at thousands of people at once and you assess their diet and then you rank and say those who ate the most fruits and vegetables, how did their disease outcomes compare to those who ate the fewest fruits and vegetables? So the FFQ was really never designed to be used on an individual level. It can be, but you have to keep in mind that in general, when we compare it to a gold standard, it's going to underestimate calorie intake by 30 to 40%. That's a lot of percent. So as we're looking at all of our diet assessment tools, we need to keep in, keep in mind the risk of error. And with that, that brings me to some diet assessment controversy for your Monday morning or whenever you choose to watch or listen to this. Um, just, to, just to bring a little drama into this class in case you were afraid of it getting very, very dry, which it still will, but a little drama. Here we go. So in 2013, I believe, yes, 2013, um, when it was my full-time job to help researchers analyze diet and come to conclusions about how diet might be impacting their study outcome, this article was published. And so in, the, in their conclusions, they write, energy intake data on the majority of respondents were not physiologically plausible, meaning that it did not make sense that people would have eaten so few calories. Improvements and measurements to the protocol, you know, made trivial increases, trivial improvements in reported energy intake. Um, but the confluence of these results and other methodological limitations suggest that the ability to estimate population trends and caloric intake and generate empirically supported public policy relevant to diet health relationships from United States nutritional surveillance is extremely limited. So basically, these authors, 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 Archer, Hand, and Blair, um, were writing that um, everything that I did for a living at that time was invalid, that the methods used to um, collect dietary intake data um, were not plausible, and that uh, everything I did was, uh, every, every food frequency questionnaire, temporary recall, everything I did for a living uh, was, was moot. So that was fun to read. Um, but what was interesting to me when, it, when I saw this article when it came out, and um, I'd never heard of these particular authors before. They were, I, I followed a lot of researchers in my professional learning network, we'll talk about that, of, of people that I wanted to learn from about diet assessment, and I, I hadn't heard of these, th this group. I had heard of some folks in this group, though. Um, and so this was a reply. So when you work in um, academia and someone calls you out or um, sort of claims that what you do is not legit, you, you respond by writing a very sternly worded letter in a, into a journal article. So here's, here's the response, one of the responses I should say. 
Archer and Blair condemn virtually the entire field of nutritional epidemiology because of its reliance on self-report dietary data. In doing so, they've ignored a large body of research that runs counter to their beliefs with regard to the assertion of Archer and Blair that we are acting in defense of the status quo, we stand guilty as charged if they mean that we assert with empirical evidence that there is value in dietary data. Okay, and these are some authors that I had heard of. And I would agree that yes, there is value in dietary data, but we do need to make sure that we're interpreting it correctly. So this was, this was as dramatic as it gets in academic research, you guys, I gotta tell you. Um, so, so we'll, we'll talk about this. Um, and I just mentioned, I just introduced the open study. Remember the open study that was in 1999 to 2000. And some of the major publications for that came out in 2003, which admitted that we have tremendous error in the way we do dietary measurement. And then in 2013, Archer and Blair come out and say that everything that the NHANES data has collected is implausible and we can't Basically, so what they're getting at here is um, the ability to generate empirically supported public policy relevant to diet health relationships is extremely limited. What they're saying is you can't use this data for anything, and you especially can't use this data to tell people how many calories they should eat in a day. So that's, that's very interesting. Um, and again, I've not heard of these authors. So, you know, you, you dig deeper, you keep going, you try and decide whether or not something is, is valid to include in your learning. And this is where I'll, I'll spare you, spare you reading the whole thing, but it's all here. You can read it. It's in the, it's in the publication. When you write a publication, you have to declare any potential conflicts of interest. And just because you have a potential conflict of interest does not mean that you necessarily have done anything wrong. Um, but it is important to declare those. And so um, the funding for this particular study, the one that concluded that we cannot form public policy based on NHANES data, the funding was from an unrestricted research grant from the Coca-Cola company. The sponsor of the study had no role in the design, study design, data collection, data analysis, data interpretation, or writing of the report, and does not alter the author's adherence to all of the journal's policies on sharing data and materials. Okay, sure, um, but why might the Coca-Cola company fund this particular person's research in the first place? Why would the Coca-Cola company fund research that ultimately concludes that um, we, we do not have the ability to create public policy around nutrition recommendations? I'm just saying I have some concerns. So the... And let me just bring you back to, and they declared their conflict of interest. So it's all on the up and up, but I, I have some concerns. And more importantly, these authors, authors rather, I keep saying Arthur because it's Archer. These authors weren't telling us anything new. They weren't telling us anything we did not already know. So for example, we know there's error in diet assessment methods. We know that people forget that they lie, that they miss foods, that they report phantom foods, that they change the way they eat if they're keeping a diet record. There's, you know, we know all of these errors. And so the National Cancer Institute, so the National Cancer Institute deeply invested in figuring out how do we prevent cancer or how do we um, help people survive after they have cancer. And we know that diet is a huge part of that. 
So the National Cancer Institute funded the OPEN study, which was the first to find that the FFQ and 24-hour recall underreported um, energy intakes. And then in 2011, they did something called the Measurement Error Webinar Series. Guys, this is like a 12-part series. And this is when I was working full-time in this area. I watched the whole dang thing. Um, so, but the, the er error, Measurement Error Webinar Series was to go through the sources of error in the way we collect data, um, ways that we could try to mitigate that error, how big those errors we should, how big we should expect those errors to be, um, and then how we can, how we can just deal with the data that we have. Because importantly, these authors that said, um, you know, back here, let me back up. These folks that said that um, the data are underreporting. Um, energy intake, and this is this is not effective. They offered no alternative. They didn't offer, and this is the way you should collect dietary data, right? They offered no better option. And so the measurement error webinar series went through, and the National Cancer Institute went through and said, look, these are our options. We can do a food frequency questionnaire. We can do a diet record. We can do screeners. We can do 24-hour recalls. Those are the options available to us. How do we make those options as optimal as we possibly can? Knowing full well that there's, there's error in these things. How do we make them as good as we can? And so that, that is a full-time job or several right there. And this is ongoing. So the, the uh, Journal of the Academy of Nutrition Dietetics in September of 2018, the entire journal, um, the September article, the September issue rather, was all about um, updating the healthy eating index, a way of looking at diet pattern analysis, which we'll get to. Um, and these are, again, many of the same authors that we see on the um, NCI publications that I mentioned. These are folks who work in nutritional, uh, nutritional epidemiology full time. Um, and they came up with even more considerations and caveats and ways to improve our um, diet assessment methods so that when we get to our analysis, um, we can come to the best conclusions we possibly can. So I split this content into diet assessment, which in my mind is collecting the information about the diet and diet analysis, which is when you do something with that information. It's kind of an arbitrary split point, but it makes sense to me that we first need to focus on the methods for collecting the information and then focus on how we um, analyze and interpret that information. So that's what we will do next. All right, diet analysis. So I mentioned in the last video, um, diet assessment and analysis, I split the two concepts up um, somewhat arbitrarily, but to me, diet analysis is really when you take the list of foods along with portion sizes and preparation details and you do something with it. You enter it into some kind of system or you look up the nutrition facts and you figure out exactly what that person ate. Part of the reason I split the two is because they each take a tremendous amount of time to do well. Um, and so diet analysis, where do you go to find the information about foods that you need? And for the most part, for the last roughly 120 years or so, um, that has been the United States Department of Agriculture, at least here in the United States. 
Um, they are an authoritative source for food composition data. Um, and it's all publicly available. So we'll talk about the different ways that the USDA has made that data available and how that has changed over the years. Um, and those data are used by um, federal agencies, food industry, dietitians, and other health professionals, restaurants, software developers, academic research institutions, um, and plenty of others, and not to mention consumers. So the, the mix of information that you can get from the USDA is pretty impressive and really has been over the years. Um, but before we get to where we are now, let's take a little trip down uh, history lane, not really memory lane, no, no, none of us remember this, uh, but look at where we've been. So on the left here, we have the U.S. Department of Agriculture Office of Experiment, Office of Experiment Stations, uh, the chemical composition of American food materials by Atwater and Woods. So if any of you have heard of those Atwater factors, those factors where we determine how many calories there are per gram of some macronutrient, um, that would be that Atwater, that's that guy. Um, this is published in 1896. Um, and then over here on the right, we have the composition of foods, raw, processed, and prepared agriculture handbook number eight. This particular agriculture handbook number eight is from 1963. Um, and so this composition of foods, here it is on the inside. Um, this is really just a tremendous resource for looking at nutrition facts. And this was published and available as a booklet or a brochure in this fantastically awesome 1960s font, um, looking at nutrition facts. But they're in tables. And you're going to have to search through the tables to find um, all of the items. And you can see that it says down here, many new foods have been added to the tables, bringing the total to nearly, you can't read it, but 2,500 items. So keep that in mind, looking at roughly 2,500 foods at that point. Um, and you can still download this if you want. There's the link if you want to go download it and read it for fun. And then in 2002, we have the USDA's Home and Garden Bulletin. And just looking at the cover of the USDA Home and Garden Bulletin from 2002 distinctly reminds me that the 90s did not end until, I guess, 2003. Um, but this one contains um, roughly 1,200 foods, so 1,274 foods expressed in common household units. Um, with 19 different nutrients. And this was developed using data from the 13th release of the USDA National Nutrient Database for Standard Reference. So something we're gonna get to here in a minute is all of these different systems for looking at um, and analyzing your diet data come off of different databases. And so the Home and Garden Bulletin was published based on the USDA National Nutrient Database for Standard Reference, commonly referred to as SR. I'll come back to that in a second. Um, so that was another print publication you could get back in the day. Um, if you ever find yourself with a dietetics preceptor who's a bit more distinguished in their practice, has, has a few more years under their belt, uh, they may refer to Bowes and Church. So Bowes and Church, Food Values of Portions Commonly Used, was a book, um, and it was a tremendously important book. The last print edition was around 2001, however, 
Um, but if someone refers to bows and church, this was a book that you would use and you would look up each food that your person reported that they ate. You'd find the nutrition facts per 100 grams. You would do the math by hand, of course, to figure out um, how many calories your person ate based on their serving size and the same for all the rest of the nutrients. And then you would go and move to the next food and start over again. Um, so Bows and Church was really a fantastic resource, um, but it was a book that you had to look everything up manually. In 2012, you could still get a Kindle edition or a CD-ROM edition of the book. Um, yeah, so, so I don't know about you, but I, I don't think my computer... In 2012, my computer might have had an optical drive, but CD, CD-ROMs are kind of, kind of on the way out. Um, so what happened here? This was, I mean, this was a hugely, hugely important book, um, and the internet killed it, right? So the internet killed the hard copy star. We can now get all of this information just on the internet. But even just getting it on the internet takes quite a bit of effort on somebody's part to get it up there for us. So that brings me back to this idea of SR. So in 2018, I believe the screenshot is from, we were up to SR 28 or the 28th edition of the USDA's standard reference for nutrients. And now we're up to 8,789 different foods and far more than 19 nutrients. Um, you can come in here and search for foods. So this is a pretty good one, actually. I'm a, I'm a, I was a big fan of the, um, you see, I'm already, I'm hinting where we're going. I was a big fan. I am a big fan of um, the, the SR. It was not ideal, but you could at least come in here and search. And um, then from there, you could actually change the portion size on the screen and it would edit. It would change all the nutrition facts for you. So you can see where that would save quite a bit of time. And I'm referring to it in the past tense, which means you know where this is headed. In 2019, I think, maybe it was later in 18, they declared that they were archiving um, SR, National Nutrient Database for Standard Reference, that it was going away and that something better was coming. Um, and it broke my heart because <laughs> I really relied on this database. We'll explain that. But I, I relied on this database quite a bit. And it said that they were going to... Um, move to something, do, 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 a new modernized system currently under development. What is more modern than a website you can search? I tell you. But all right, so be it. And then in June of 2018, June 30th of 2018, they announced that Super Tracker was going to be discontinued. Actually, they announced it before then, but Super Tracker was discontinued on June 30th, 2018 which I will never get over this. Super Tracker was a really great website that was built off of the USDA recommendations for um, food patterns and like the My Pyramid or My Plate, you know, all that's changed over the years. Um, and it relied on the USDA SR database. So I knew if I put my nutrition, if I put my food intake into Super Tracker, I knew which database it was pulling from to populate my nutrition facts for my day, so to speak. And I felt I could really trust that information because I knew what database it was using. Um, and I, I just, I was such a fan of Super Tracker. And then they discontinued it. That makes me so sad. So out with the old, 
moment moments for for USDA uh, standard reference for Super Tracker and Bozen Church. All of these things have have gone gone by the wayside. Um, and in with the new. So what is the new? Well, we now have Food Data Central, which I actually sent you to for your lab last week that you go in and use Food Data Central. So let's take a look at this. Let's go look at Food Data Central and see what they left me with when they cut me off of everything else that I know and love. So Food Data Central, I'm going to come in here and just search peanuts because it comes to mind. Encountered an error during search. See help page on search operators for more information. How did I do peanuts wrong? All right, fine. Let me try peanut. Really? Oh, now this is fun. I don't have time to re-record this and make this work better. Uh, all right, broccoli. No, I don't want to spell that wrong. I'll spell it wrong and you'll all laugh. Apple. Oh, nothing is working. Oh, this is fabulous. This is the modernized system that replaced it SR28. So it's, it's searching actually SR Legacy, a branded foods database, the survey database, and the foundation database. Can you just search S? Oh, the whole dang website's not working. Did this happen to you guys in lab last week and no one said anything? Oh my word. Oh, this is so much more fun than this happening to me during class because now this video will live forever and show me struggling through this forever. All right, well, the idea, what I meant to show you was that Food Data Central is actually pretty good, evidently when it works, um, because it shows you which database it's pulling from and there are multiple databases. So instead of just searching the standard reference database, you could also search this branded foods database, which is where manufacturers can submit their foods. Um, and the FNDDS database, FNDDS being the database that underlies the NHANES. Um, and then I'm not quite sure what foundation is off the top of my head. Experimentals for experimental foods. Um, and none of it is working. That's fantastic. We will have to write a strongly worded letter to the U.S. Department of Agriculture and tell them I can't search bread. How about bread? I just, nope, nothing works. All right, well, hashtag 2020, you guys. All right, so back to the slides. Um, this is the new site, and in theory, it works great. Uh, yeah, so this one actually incorporates multiple databases, as I just referred to. The USDA National Nutrient Database for Standard Reference the Food and Nutrition Database for Dietary Studies. The FNDDS is the database that is used as part of the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey, which comes up with some data called What We Eat in America, which we'll get to in a minute. Branded Food Products Database, Food Patterns Equivalence Database, or FPED, formerly the My Plate or the My Pyramid Equivalence Database, and a Dietary Supplement Ingredient Database. So what, I, what am I getting at with all this? What's important when you go to analyze someone's diet is that you know where you're getting your numbers from. You, you know that the information you're getting is reliable as it can be in terms of, um, yeah, so there it is, SR 1128. I don't want to download it. I want to search it. I tell you. Um, you want to make sure that the, the numbers are correct, right? So who's, who created these numbers? Who verified these numbers? Where does information come from? And can you really rely on it? The USDA also has additional databases like the one you see here, this table of nutrient retention factors. 
So it's one thing to say that you ate a sweet potato, but what if you um, cook it differently? What does that do in terms of the bioavailability of the nutrients? So sweet potatoes boiled in skin, what percent of the calcium that would have been in a raw sweet potato will you get now that you have cooked it? Or what percent of the vitamin A or the carotene or the lycopene, lutein, zeaxanthin? So this type of database is not incorporated into all software systems. And we will talk about different software systems for analyzing dietary intake when we get to lab this week. Um, but this is another type of database that is published by the USDA. USDA is pretty busy when they're <clears throat> making their websites work. Um, and then that, of course, is all very specific to the United States, and we are not the only place in the world. So there is an International Nutrient Databank directory, but this one I found out was broken before I started my video, so I can show you that um, when I click on the, the link I have saved for the International Nutrient Databank directory, they can't find the page, so I certainly can't find it either. Um, but I do have a screenshot of it from last year. Um, basically, the International Nutrient Databank directory goes through and organizes different databases, right? So different um, registries of all the nutrition facts that people have compiled, who put that database together, who that database is designed for, and where they pull their data from. So for example, you could come in here and ESHA database is for ESHA research. It is um, one of the software systems we'll be looking at is um, ESHA food processor and they pull in one or more reference databases. So I know off the top of my head, that they pull in the USDA standard reference database and they pull in several other databases as well. And so you could click here and scroll down and get the full details on all of that. So this is actually a very handy website um, for assessing different databases or different software systems to see where they were getting their data from. Um, and of course, it's just not working this year because nothing is working this year. But that drove me to dig further and find that you can look at the International Network of Food Data Systems or InFoods. And this one, I swear to you, is working. I was just here. Yes. Okay. So here's their list of international databases. So you can come in and this is, look, I can click on International Nutrient Databank. It's not there. It's broken. Um, but these are all the different databases um, that are listed under their international databases list. Or you can just come in here and search by area of the world to find the different databases that exist for different parts of the world. Because we eat differently in different areas of the world. And so what is standard in the United States um, is probably not standard in Indonesia. So there are different databases for different parts of the world. So if you're looking to do international research, this would be a pretty big deal. You want to make sure that you are using the right type of database for analyzing the data that you have collected. So with all of that, once you've collected your data, and we'll talk about software systems as part of lab, you collect the data, you enter it, you basically tabulate or calculate the nutrients per food um, and come up with a total number for your people or person. Um, and then what would you compare it to? So I've talked a lot about the USDA. This is data from actually um, 
the uh, CDC collects it as part of NHANES, um, but it's looking at the What We Eat in America database. And so this is nutrient intakes from foods and beverages, mean amounts consumed per, in consumed per individual by gender and age, 2017, 2018. So you can come in here and for all adults, 20 and over, you can see what their average calorie intake was, what their average protein intake was, carbohydrate, um, sugar, fiber, fat, saturated fat, mon monopoly, so on and so forth. Um, and so this type of data, this is something that's very instructive to us to have some type of reference and say, what is the average person eating? Um, and I would use something like this if I were working on um, a dietary study, for example, where they wanted me to provide patients with a typical diet. Well, what does typical mean, right? So typical is going to vary based on who we're talking about. But I could come into what we eat in America, um, particularly for something like sodium, and say, what is the typical intake of sodium? Um, and say, what, what should I give people so that they will not balk at what this tastes like? So let's do that. Let's come in here, look at gender and age, and let's go find sodium. It's in here somewhere. I know it. Do, do, do. Watch me scroll. Nope, there it is. All right. So age 20 and over, sodium average intake is um, 3,531 milligrams, which is considerably more than our recommended intake of 1,500 milligrams. But if I wanted to provide someone with a diet that was typical for people living in the United States, I could provide them with a diet that provides about three grams of sodium and hope that they find that palatable and they're willing to eat it. So this, what you see here, is the culmination of a huge amount of effort to compile and to analyze all of the 24-hour recalls that were collected as part of NHANES. So how do you get to this point? Well, at this point, you'd use software systems. Historically, you would use a book and you do everything by hand. Um, but now we use computer systems. So we'll be talking about that in great depth um, later in the week. Um, but another important question that we'll get to in the next video is, okay, this is a typical diet, but typically we want to compare someone's diet to a standard that will provide us with health. So our next question is going to be, what would a healthy diet look like? All right, so let's assume at this point that you have chosen your method for diet assessment. You have either used a food frequency questionnaire or a diet record or a 24 recall, and you have picked out a software for analyzing that information or a database or both um, for getting the exact numbers for someone's dietary intake. Now we get to decide whether or not what that person ate was healthy. So if we were in person, this is the point in class when I would stare you down and say, what is a healthy diet? And you would all stare blankly back at me because it's eight o'clock in the morning on a Monday morning. And um, it's, it should be fairly obvious, right? A healthy diet is one that promotes health, right? So it, it's adequate. It has enough calories. It, have, it has enough of the micronutrients. It supports growth and development. It lets us do what we want to do. Um, and that's, that is all true, but a healthy diet, you know, does, is it also one that prevents cancer or prevents heart disease? Um, is a healthy diet one that people enjoy eating? 
Um, does it follow specific cultural or religious specifications? Um, there's, there's really a lot of different ways to look at whether or not a diet is healthy. Um, and so we're going to talk about that. And we're also going to talk about the different benchmarks that we do use to first whether assess whether or not a diet is adequate. And then second, to assess whether it can really get at um, promoting health or disease prevention. So some of this is going to be review for you. Um, you've undoubtedly prior to now seen the dietary reference intakes. Um, but for review, the dietary reference intakes are the intake recommendations that are provided by the Food and Nutrition Board at the Institute of Medicine of the National Academies, which is um, a whole long way of saying that it's the Food and Nutrition Board at the IOM, which is part of the National Academies, formerly known as the National Academy of Sciences. Gotta love it. So the dietary reference intake is a general term for this set of reference values that are used in planning and assessing nutrient intakes for healthy people. So keep in mind, these are um, the values that we use for planning nutrient intakes and for assessing and planning nutrient intakes for healthy people um, and that they vary by age and gender. And we have adequate intakes, estimated average requirements, the recommended dietary allowance, and tolerable upper intake level. So let's just go back through these one more time for review. So the dietary reference intakes, they represent the um, quantitative approximation of nutrient needs for the purpose of planning and assessing the diet of healthy people. So we're planning for the nutrient needs of otherwise healthy people. This table really helped me put together in my head how these different values relate to each other. So what we're looking here on this side on the y-axis is the risk of inadequacy. So at this point, we have 50% of the population would be inadequate um, and the other 50% of the population would be adequate. They would be okay. Um, and so the estimated average requirement is the point at which the needs of the population for that nutrient would be met for half of the population, okay? So if we think back to statistics and normally distributed data, two standard deviations above that is where we find roughly um, 97, 98% of um, healthy people ish. Two standard deviations actually get you slightly more than 95%. Three standard deviations get you, get you 99%. So it's, it's, it's somewhere in between the two. But the recommended dietary allowance is then set at um, two to three-ish standard deviations above the estimated average requirement. Because at that point, we assume that we're meeting the needs, the risk of being inadequate approaches zero because we're meeting the needs of 95 to 97% ish of the total population. Now with that, the people who were adequate at the EAR would now be getting more than they need, um, but we would also be meeting the needs of those who needed more. So what is the point of all of this? The point of all of this is that people's individual needs do vary. We are not all the same. But on average, we can come up with a point at which half of the population have its needs met 
And then we can go above that and say 97, 98% of the population is going to have their needs met at this level. This is where we will make our recommendation. And then above that, more is not necessarily better, right? But if it's a water-soluble vitamin in particular, you'll probably just pee it out and you'll be fine. And so we have the observed level of intake where um, basically nothing good or bad happens up to a point. And then we have the tolerable upper intake level. The tolerable upper intake level is the point at which we first begin to observe adverse effects. So we don't want adverse effects. This is not a recommendation in terms of you should eat this much. This is a you should stop before you get to this point line. Um, because at this point, we begin to see adverse effects. And nobody wants those. So the RDAs are set higher than the EAR um, by two standard deviations or a coefficient of variation for the EAR. And that way, if you are hitting this, this RDA, we're likely adequate for the vast majority of the population. And then the upper intake level is stop, do not pass go, do not collect $200, do not go past this point. It's not going to help you. In fact, you might even feel worse. So here are the words of everything I just said. The big point is that the estimated average requirement is used as the basis for developing the RDA. Um, it can be used to assess adequacy of nutrition intakes in populations, but we should not use it in individuals. And then the recommended dietary allowance or RDA, this is the one you want to use in terms of looking at whether or not an individual is meeting adequate nutrient intakes um, with the aim of reducing the risk of chronic disease. But we can't always establish an RDA. An RDA is established based off of the EAR. Back up, uh, there we go. If we can't establish an EAR to, in order to develop an RDA, then we end up with an adequate intake. So the adequate intake is established when the evidence is insufficient to come up with an EAR. And this is the recommended average daily nutrient intake based on observed or experimentally determined approximations of nutrient intake by a group or groups of healthy people. This one is set um, at a level assumed to ensure nutritional adequacy. Um, and it's derived through, um, you know, what we can find, basically. And so the, um, the AI is basically what you're going to have in place of the RDA if there's inadequate information. So this is, this is our very best guess, our very highly educated and um, empirical guess. And then tolerable upper intake level. Again, I cannot stress this enough. This is not intended as a recommended level of intake. And it does refer to the total intake from food, fortified food, and nutrient supplements. This is the maximum intake at which we're unlikely to cause adverse health effects. Beyond this point, you would have um, adverse health effects. And an adverse effect is considered any alteration in the structure or function of the human organism or any impairment of a physiologically important function. And also keep in mind, think back to or think of currently your courses on metabolism. 
nutrients compete for absorption. And so if you have overloaded on a single micronutrient, think of the possible impacts that has on other nutrients. And once absorbed, all of these nutrients work synergistically to, um, to provide all their functions to the body. So more is not always better. It's not that you should, you should overdose on any particular um, nutrient or multiple nutrients for that matter. So quick story here, just to drive home this point. Once upon a time, I had a coworker who was not a dietitian, um, working full-time, mother of two small children. She was just fatigued. She went to her doctor. Her doctor told her that she was um, malnourished um, based on the report of fatigue. And we'll talk about that, how you actually diagnose malnutrition. Um, and this doctor recommended some mega doses of supplements for her. And so I was talking to this woman, her name was Amy. And she said, you know, I just, I feel worse. I'm taking these vitamins and I just, I feel worse. I have diarrhea and cramping and I just, I feel awful. And I said, Amy, what are you taking? And I don't remember what she said past um, the vitamin C because she told me she was taking 10,000 milligrams of vitamin C. Okay. So vitamin C, let's Let's scroll back here for a second. The RDA for an adult female for vitamin C is about 75 milligrams. That would be, that would be adequate and would promote health. Um, and then the upper limit for vitamin C is 2000 milligrams or two grams. And she was taking 10,000 milligrams or 10 grams of vitamin C a day. We are off the chart in terms of she's gone way past this tolerable upper intake level, but that's what the doctor ordered. So she was taking it. Any guesses what the side effects of a vitamin C toxicity are? It leads to diarrhea and gastrointestinal distress. It is a water-soluble vitamin. You will not absorb more than you need, um, but it'll cause you some pain and agony on the way through. Um, so I had to try and talk her down, this coworker of mine down from these mega doses of vitamins that her physician had prescribed. And also where was this physician and can I please wring her neck? Because that was absolutely beyond the tolerable upper intake level. The tolerable upper intake level is not a recommended level of intake and she'd blown past it and sure enough felt worse. And somehow it never occurred to anyone that someone might just be fatigued from working full time and, and having small children. I don't know. Happens to me. So tall developer intake level, stop at this point. Actually stop before you get to this point. Presumably she was also getting plenty of good nutrition from her food, or maybe she needed to get better food. She did not need to take 10 grams of vitamin C a day. So when you are planning the diets for individuals, you can look at this flow chart or this decision tree and decide how to proceed. You have an individual, are there special considerations? No, they're otherwise healthy. Then you can plan so the RDA or AI for age and sex is met, but remain below the UL. Do not go above the UL. If there are special considerations, for example, a smoker does need more vitamin C to the tune of like 30 to 35 more milligrams of vitamin C though, not nothing crazy. Some athletes may need more iron. Some vegetarians might need more iron or zinc. Someone who is ill may have nutrients that are directly impacted by that illness. 
In that case, you do want to plan for appropriate intakes of specific nutrients of concern based on those special considerations. But if the person is otherwise healthy, we're just going to plan to meet the RDA or the AI. That's our plan. And that really covers us for all of the micronutrients. For macronutrients, though, that's a bit different. We're going to look at the acceptable macronutrient distribution ranges. So these are the ranges of macronutrient intake that are known to support growth, development, and health for children and adults. And notice they are ranges. So you can't eat at the top of each of the ranges. If you have 35% of your total calories from protein and 35% of your total calories from fat, you cannot then make up the rest of your total calories with 65% of yeah, it being carbohydrate. That would be more than 100%. You cannot eat more than 100%. Um, but this is a range, right? So if you wanted to be on the lower end of the carbohydrate range and the higher end of the protein range, so long as everything adds up to 100% when you're done, you're fine, right? So these are the ranges that we know are going to support health. And this is the point where if we were in person, someone would stop and ask about the ketogenic diet. And this is the point where I would answer that the ketogenic diet is still very much understudied. There's lots of research on the ketogenic diet actually happening on Ohio State's campus. And a lot of that research is actually very promising for specific populations, which kind of brings me back to the idea of this decision tree. Are there special considerations? Is it a specific population? Some specific populations, yes, may benefit from a ketogenic diet, but it's this, what you're seeing here is what we can recommend basically to all individuals, um, pretty much regardless as a percent of total energy um, in terms of promoting health. So the evidence for ketogenic diet is developing and ongoing. Um, and at this point it is limited. So that's why we would go with the AMDRs when planning someone's diet or when comparing their dietary intake to say whether or not what they ate was healthy. And with that, that covered our micronutrients and our macronutrients. But the more we look at diet, the more we study diet, the more we learn that there's a lot to a healthy diet besides just carbs, fat, protein, you know, vitamins and minerals. So what about everything else. So this is a screenshot of some of the data that you get from a software system that I'll talk more about right now, but also in lab called um, Nutrition Data Systems for Research. This is the one that gets super detailed in terms of the number of foods you can analyze and then the number of nutrients you can get in the data output from their database. So when you're looking at everything else, you could look at all of the other nutrients. This, I'll show you this in a second. It scrolls for many, many columns. You can also look at food groups, so food groupings. So if we know that dark green vegetables are very healthy, should we look at exactly how many servings of dark green vegetables someone is getting? And so what I'm getting at here is this idea of diet pattern analysis. So it's one thing to say whether or not someone met their calorie needs or their micronutrient needs. We also might want to know how is the overall diet pattern? What does their diet look like, the sum of their diet um, as a whole? And to do this, there's a, a number of different um, diet indices that we can use to compare. So the healthy eating index, the healthy eating index actually compares to the dietary reference index and intakes, DRI recommendations. 
um, and it matches up with the um, recommendations that are published every five years for, um, well, it was my pyramid and then my plate, and now it's just the recommendations. So 2005, 2010, and 2015, so we have healthy eating index that matches with those recommendations. There's also an alternate healthy eating index, a Mediterranean food score, and an alternate Mediterranean food score, a diet quality index, and then a revised diet quality index, and many more. The point of this, though, is to say that we want to look at the total diet, all of the aspects of the diet that we think are important, compile them together, and then in some way, shape, or form, quantify the quality of the dietary intake or rank that dietary intake um, and get a sense of, of what we can really interpret from that. So with that, I just want to show you an example healthy eating index 2010 spreadsheet that I built back in the day to try to do that. So here again, what you're seeing here are the um, data outputs from nutrition data systems for research. This was a research study that I worked on roughly 2013, 2012-ish. And so you can see here all of the different, um, this is the food, the nutrients file, I should say. So all the different nutrients that are assessed in this data system. This is the data exported to Excel. Um, so I can come in here and get a breakdown of the exact carbohydrates, the monosaccharides, the fiber, the types of fiber, um, vitamin A international, vitamin A activity in international units, beta carotene, right? You get the idea. This goes on breakdown of all the saturated fatty acids, breakdown of all the minerals. We can look at the MUFAs, the PUFAs, specifically each of those. Um, here we have all of the amino acids reported individually. We have caffeine, water, percents, calories from, all of these things are provided here. And then in this file, this is the foods file. You can come in here and in this row, you'll see the different food groups analysis, how we've analyzed the types of foods. So, okay, they ate a lot of vegetables, but did they eat leafy green vegetables or were they eating fried potatoes, right? So there's a, there's a, there's a slight difference there. My French fry loving heart can admit there's a slight difference there. Um, and so this is the food groups analysis, right? So you get the idea. This is going on for columns and columns and columns of data going across. This is the food groups analysis. The other was the nutrients analysis. How do we take all of that and calculate something that tells us the quality of someone's diet? So what the healthy eating index does is it wants the total fruit servings in cup equivalents, which of course NDSR reports things in half cup equivalents, so I had to divide that by two, but the total fruit servings in cup equivalents, and then actually it wants to know it in terms of per thousand calories, because the healthy eating index takes into account diet quality as a function of diet quantity. So let's say you had someone eating 10,000 calories a day and they happened to get enough fruits and vegetables. Um, and, you know, you know, I would hope at that point, but you miss the fact that their saturated fat intake was off the charts because you were looking at just fruits and vegetables. So the healthy eating index says as a function of how many calories a person is eating, are they meeting the recommendations? So we have total fruit, whole fruit, total vegetables, um, protein, legumes, 
seafood and plant proteins. Um, and then we have some reverse scoring where it's, it's works against you if you consume too much in the way of fatty acids, refined grains, sodium, and um, added sugars by total sugars. So what you see here is an incredibly complex spreadsheet that I built that pulls the data from previous pages in the um, workbook or from previous cells on this particular worksheet and then calculates the score, the total um, value from those, and then the score that they get. So this one, total fruit, the possible score is zero to five, whole fruit also zero to five, veg zero to five, greens and beans zero to five, whole grains zero to 10, dairy zero to 10, protein zero to five, seafood and plant protein zero, you get the idea. When all is said and done, you end up with a single score and that score is out of 100. And so now, looking at things like total fruit intake, vegetable intake, specifically greens and legumes, whole grains as opposed to just all grains, dairy, total protein, seafood and plant protein, and then fatty acids, um, refined grains. Oh, this one's actually a function. That one's a ratio. So that one is actually positively scored um, in terms of the MUFAs and PUFAs to saturated fatty acids. And then these are reverse scored. So um, if you consumed a lot of refined grains, that would be a lower score. If you consume a lot of sodium, that's a lower score. And then empty calories would be that solid fats and added sugars. So yeah, it's all coming back to me now. So these are things you, you aspire to, and these are things you shy away from as part of the recommendations from 2010. And you end up with this single score, a single number that we can use to compare to a standard for that individual or to compare all of the individuals in the data set and say, what are they eating on average, right? So I've got an average down here. Or more likely, you would split them into quintiles or quartiles and say those in this, in this quartile or quintile, the highest quartile, for example, did they have better health outcomes because they were eating closer to the recommendations. So this is just a lovely color-coded spreadsheet that merges this idea of you have to collect the data, you have to analyze the data and input it into a software system, and then you get to interpret it and tell the researcher whether or not their participants were eating a healthy diet. And so um, that's just an example of calculating the healthy eating index. I did that years ago, um, and now everyone has caught up and blown past me in terms of technological advancements. The, there's a food frequency questionnaire that each of you are going to complete as part of the ABCDE project. And built into that food frequency questionnaire, there's an automated analysis that will give you your HEI 2015, I believe, your HEI 2015 score automatically. Um, so I just wanted to show you a little bit behind the scenes of how you come up with something like that. <coughs> and we don't have an exam for a while yet, but naturally after watching me geek out over that particular spreadsheet, you're sitting there wondering, will that be on the test? And no, I will not have you building spreadsheets for your exam. I just wanted you to know how hard it was. So um, it, is, it is great fun to work in this area. And it's really instructive, though, at the end of the day to get that information and have a sense of, 
um, whether or not someone consumed a healthy diet. And I wanted to show through this series of videos, and we'll get to it some more in lab this week, how much work it takes to get those numbers, to get that um, analysis of um, dietary intake. 